this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David. This is your new episode of Base Layer. Uh, we are at the Digital Athletes Summit in Dallas. And I have Tor Demister from Adamant Capital and Dhruv Bamsal from Unchained Capital with me. They just gave an amazing presentation on Bitcoin. Um, and as someone who I've been following quite often on Twitter, uh, Tor, I'm really happy to be sitting with you. Yes, I do talk to Bitcoin people. Um, <laughs> and I like Bitcoin people. And so, you know, I really wanted us to come on. Um, why don't we, you know, first have uh, Tor just give a little bit of a background on himself and Adamant. And then, uh, Drew, if I want to hear about what you're working on Unchained. And we're going to talk a lot about Bitcoin. So you said a bit about my background and what I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. So background. Uh, Economics, mostly, I guess, philosophy, too, and a bit of history. Uh, been in Bitcoin since 2011-12. Uh, what fascinates me about it is that it's censorship-resistant and uh, that, that it's especially an asset that has the promise of both being liquid and with low counterparty risk, which to me was fantastic because I was looking for something that I could own during a, you know, an inflationary crisis or things like that. That was really kind of the, the scenario I was looking to hedge against. Uh, so, so I also had some have some background in the gold space because of that, um, and then uh, you know I just was been full time in Bitcoin since 2013. Made some VC investments in the space, published some reports over over the years, um, and um, and I manage a small hedge fund, and we uh, we are alpha. Um, so we're a pure Bitcoin alpha fund, which mm-hmm. means that we're Bitcoin. Um, Benchmarks. So our okay. performance is benchmarked against Bitcoin. When 2011 happened, I'm curious: were you seeking it, or did it seek you? I think to some extent it it, it soak. No, what is the past? <laughs> I don't know. Fuck. It sought me. It sought me uh, because I was, you know, uh, going around in libertarian circles, and I actually um, saw a presentation by the son of Milton Friedman in uh, 2010, and he was talking about um, this. It was a dystopian version, but it was this kind of cypherpunk future where digital money was anonymous and things like that in some scenarios. And I, that, I think that partly primed me for, for Bitcoin. Um, and I was definitely looking for investments that were out of the box. Like I, I was just seeing the, I had an investment newsletter at the time. And so I was just seeing the landscape of just, you know, very stock focused um, investments, not a very, not a lot of macro views, at least not where I was from in Belgium and Holland. So yeah, in, in that sense, I was seeking it. Although, I mean, it had to win me, you know, it had to win me. It was not love at first sight. I had to like, you know, especially about the scarcity, I wanted to have real proof that this was genuinely scarce because that really confused me early on. Right. Andrew? I mean, I, I have almost exactly uh, complimentary, I think, kind of experience and story about um, my life and how I found Bitcoin <clears throat> and uh, whether it sought me. Um, so I'm originally a physicist. That's kind of my background. Um, I worked in mostly statistical mechanics and programming large simulations of the world. So like, what, what would a huge box of atoms like this do um, in all sorts of ways? So I was you know, learning a lot about computing and big systems and kind of transitioned out of uh, which is to say, dropped out of uh, graduate school, started a company um, in the distributed systems and cloud computing space um, in Austin uh, a while back, and uh, wound up selling the company. And and somewhere in that journey, I had heard about Bitcoin and the company uh, in 2011, actually. So I sold the company in 2013. 
uh, with, uh, with with my co-founder Joe, who actually works with me, uh, and we started Unchained um, subsequent to this. But in 2011, we were still in the middle of this first company, and I, I now knew about um, you know distributed systems like databases, NoSQL, Hadoop, some of these uh, you know keywords for those who come from that space or, or, or have invested there. Um, the kind of technology that Google probably really um, you know made possible, and then kind of got open sourced, and everyone started to use. My company at the time uh, just helped people, uh, helped large companies, uh, I should say, implement that kind of technology. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting really conversant and familiar with distributed systems in general. Like, what are the trade offs that a database has to make in order to be able to achieve throughput, scale, consistency? There's a, a set of constraints there uh, that aren't, that cannot be simultaneously satisfied. So it's about trade offs in engineering. And uh, at an open source conference, I actually met a, a rather interesting, colorful character who's wearing a kilt. And uh, he was really into Bitcoin. He was a mathematician. And so I had this great background to understand. And he was very eloquent and patient. And he was able to, we were able to get into it. Um, and I, I actually understood immediately the artificial scarcity part. Because I was like, oh, I understand these cryptographic aspects. Like, okay, cool. I see what you've done there. That's, oh, that's actually very interesting. The, the digital double spend problem, right? Sort of being right. to the technical mm-hmm. statement of the, the problem that Satoshi solved. I was being taught this by a mathematician. Mm-hmm. So we were approaching it like it's a problem and here's the solution. And I was like, that's a really interesting, sort of navel-gazy, uh, useless, uh, esoteric fact that now I'm glad I know. All right? Cool. Um, the, my criticism was, it seems like in order to make this actually work, you would need to trick a bunch of people somehow into valuing this token. That would never happen. Why would people want that? At the time, I had no money of my own. Um, I, did, I did not know about, uh, I, I you know, heard, sort of heard of libertarian politics, but I wasn't very influenced by it. Uh, I certainly had not heard of sound money uh, or Austrian economics. Um, these weren't concerns of mine. Um, I was very much a scientist who was now uh, working in uh, a tech company. So I thought that part was absurd. That would never work. And at the time, I asked, well, how much is Bitcoin worth if people are supposed to value it? And it's like, oh, less than a dollar, right? So <laughs> everyone has a regret story, and that's kind of mine. I completely dismissed it for years. For me, the thing that made me pay attention and stand up was a couple of years later, you know, I had sold a company. I was now managing you know, some money for the first time in my life, making investment decisions. And I was like, you know, what that Bitcoin stuff? Maybe I'll check that out, like a couple hundred bucks. Now I'm like, what? How did that happen? In this short span of year, two years, 100x? Right. Uh, who is buying this? Who are these people? Uh, and that really, for me, started the journey of like, um, there are reasons. And I think Tour described a lot of uh, the things that he was looking for. I sort of discovered that those mm-hmm. were even things that people wanted. Mm-hmm. And that helped me understand, okay, other than criminals and child porn and all the sort of negative things you might assign to early Bitcoin users, which of course did happen. And at that part, I could see there was this really legitimate, like long lasting momentum giving use case that I sort of became more and more conversant with over time. Right. Um, so it's been interesting. So I, yeah, yeah, dudes exactly. like us are on the same podcast right now. Yeah. Um, I find that to be one of the most remarkable aspects of all. Yeah, and to me, it were it were you know the engineers and 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 some physicists actually that that did convince me. Like I needed mm-hmm. those, and then you needed the kind of mm-hmm. economic um, confirmation. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't make sense at first. So I'm curious. So many people who are outside of this box and the podcast and the vlog and everything mm-hmm. that you know we're trying to do as a community are trying to get people outside of our box who now understand the technicals who understand the economic side of things are still affected by price they look at the price and that's kind of what they gauge their interest into when do you think or is there a point in time that you think that we get away from this price speculation that they actually start to really look into the underpinning technology 
and the capability of censorship resistance that they understand that? Do you think we're going to get to a point there? And when does that happen? How does that happen? I don't. I don't believe in like. I don't believe that markets are homogenous, and so, you know, in in a significant respect, what you're talking about is already happening. Like there are people that just run their own nodes, and that mm-hmm. you know really kind of live this, um, let's say, um, self sovereignty. And then you know there's going to be more people of those in the future, and of course there's there's also entrepreneurs that are making it easier to make that choice for people because, you know, it it is. Um, Early on, it was all command line based, and 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 it was very complicated to to kind of protect yourself and protect your keys. And I mean, there's there's thousands of stories of Bitcoiners that lost Bitcoins because right. you know they didn't. Sometimes, sometimes they even over engineered their own security, and then they forgot one of their five passwords, and they lost it. Like there's locked themselves out. Yeah. Exactly. That that was one of the most common ways to lose your Bitcoins early on. Um, and how many have been kind of lost that way? It's like two million. I mean, now? There, there's one. Yeah, I mean, there, there's in total probably between two and three million. Right. So that means like the the current supply of eighteen million, like take away, you know, two or three. So you're talking about fifteen and a half, maybe actual Bitcoin in circulation. Let's be really specific though, <clears throat> because I think a lot of people outside of our box say things like hacks or that it was stolen or some sort of perpetrators took it. Please. Specify that again, that it was key loss predominantly, and it was also exchanges that also had those problems, correct? Yeah, it's like, the, the, you know, saying that a system won't work because there's theft is similar to saying, well, gold is not a good store of value because gold gets stolen. Look at all these bank robberies of the 19th century. Like, no, that means that the banks somehow were insufficiently protected. And like, who's even to say that on a, on a in the aggregate that 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 amounted to much. I mean, a lot of those robberies were during times of economic depression and stuff, which right. crime just soars in that period anyway. So, yeah, I think that it's very important to keep in mind that Bitcoin as an asset, Bitcoin as a commodity is very different from particular Bitcoin service providers that do a bad job or that somehow get compromised. Uh, you know, that is the creative destruction that is ultimately maturing the whole ecosystem, right? We need initial startups to fail so that others can come in place and show how it's done. Creative. I think better. Tour is saying that, you know, crime is fair use. Mm-hmm. And I think Bitcoin, it, it's, it, it, no one wants... Don't quote me on that. I didn't yeah. say that. I said that. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think that Bitcoiners want crime. Bitcoin doesn't want to be infested with scams, but we are humans after all. Anything that we do, there are going to be certain of us that decide to try to bend the rules and get around them. What's remarkable about Bitcoin is that the rules that are programmed in are very, very um, hard. Right. Which means if you understand them and you do the right things, it's very difficult for you, your coins to actually be stolen. And if you don't over-engineer it, um, you can be pretty reliably sure that they're always there and you can check that you still have access. Right. So there's some responsible ways to hold Bitcoin. Um, and in that sense, it becomes uh, money for adversaries, if you'd like. Uh, that's a grim way of looking at it, but that is often what security is in the real world. That's sort of a real politic of internet security, right. of global physical security, and it's true in Bitcoin ownership as well. So let's talk about that. That leads me to a conversation or a question about anonymity versus pseudonymity. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, on crypto Twitter, it went all crazy last week about this notion of anonymity versus pseudonymity and how you know some people believed that you know not you know kind of what happened you know with chain analysis. And kind of unraveling this, you know, kind of unfortunate, you know, issue with you know child pornography with associated with Bitcoin that 
oh, it's not, you know, it's it, it's not actually, you know, anonymous and that, you know, its real promise was not actually realized that it's, you know, everyone can just see everything. It's, and I think there's an important difference between anonymity and pseudonymity that a lot of people outside of Bitcoin don't understand. So can you both kind of allude and kind of enlighten us on that? Do you want to start? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, first of all, bravo to the authorities on this one for being excellent adversaries. Um, it, there's an arms race in privacy and anonymity within Bitcoin's fundamentally pseudonymous structure, because that's correct. Bitcoin has strong anonymity guarantees and, and strong privacy guarantees, uh, but is fundamentally pseudonymous. So that's absolutely true. Uh, again, if you, uh, those people got caught uh, deservedly uh, because they also made mistakes. Now, uh, I'm not advocating that criminals get smarter. I am advocating that you know governments and police officers and those who investigate crimes get smarter and understand these technologies. Um, with that said, I think that there is also within that arms race a, an effort by Bitcoin developers to develop ever better privacy tools. And it's not just because they're trying to enable criminals. It's because anti-censorship and privacy and the right to private transactions and, and uh it is deeply baked into Bitcoin culturally as well as technologically and is a net good. Mm -hmm. And driving towards that helps everybody. Um, and so things, as much as this is a great win for law enforcement today, this is always going to be an arms race. There are new technologies coming out uh, over the next three to four years, hopefully, that will make Bitcoin transactions fundamentally more private and much more difficult to, to trace. I kind of view this initial phase of Bitcoin as a sort of transparent era mm -hmm. and things are going to eventually go opaque quite soon and largely for the same reason that financial transactions are fundamentally opaque in the real world is because there's a lot of them and it's complex right. um, and Bitcoin has that to a certain extent today but computers can keep up and data analysis algorithms can keep up and through tracking over time and metadata uh, law enforcement can keep up that's going to change and so they're going to have to uh, change their methods as well and I think it's right that there be a certain amount of adversarialness there between those who are seeking to find and those who are seeking to hide. What's fascinating to me is that there's this, you know, Bitcoin developers are creating this tool set of very sophisticated privacy technologies mm -hmm. that then, you know, companies, family offices, individuals, they can pick and choose and they can just assemble, you know, what they want so that they reveal the information they choose to reveal, which is part of, you know, being self-sovereign. It's just that you are kind of in control, just like how you have the right to, you know, close the windows of your house and, you know, put the key on the front door. And also similarly with your financial assets, you should be able to have similar tools. Uh, and especially, you know, in the short term, it's probably going to be corporations who want that the most because they don't necessarily want their competitors to see how many, you know, how much they're paying their, their employees and who is on the payroll and everything. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also the, the kind of vulnerability to theft and those kind of things that you don't want to expose your employees to. So there's just natural demand for, for uh, privacy. And, and I think it's fantastic that we're, we're developing technology that is a lot more powerful. In, um, and, and I mean, there's going to be time locks where like Bitcoin transactions can be locked in time for a certain amount of time. There's going to be clawback mechanisms, like all kinds of ways to protect either your Bitcoin or the corporation's Bitcoin or things like that. And, and that, of course, over, in the long run, over time, it lowers the costs of doing business, it lowers the cost of, 
of, of financial transactions, which right. means that there's more prosperity for everyone. Right? Right. In, in, in the aggregate, there's more prosperity if you, de- if you develop a technology that lowers costs of, you know, in this case, protection of information. And, and let's even take that a step further, because privacy, I'm, you're, not, you're not suggesting this at all, but privacy is not <coughs> the only uh, great benefit here. That's why, this, that's why pursuing privacy is such a net good. Because, but just to give a very concrete example, um, there's a, there are many other companies that do this, but one that I particularly like is a company called Satoshi Labs, which produces a device called the Trezor. It's a very sophisticated cryptographic device that costs 100 bucks, something like this. You can put it in your pocket. Um, it's open source. Uh, it's not easy to use, but it's, it's very uh, usable once you understand how it works. And I won't get into the details of why it's so powerful. It boils down to you have this offline, not on the internet, physical key that you can use to authenticate Bitcoin transactions. But the technology that's baked into that device is extremely useful outside of the context of Bitcoin. Just as an example, I sometimes have a funny feeling these days when I try to call my bank and they want to confirm my identity or I send a wire, for example. And they call me and say, well, what's the last for your social buddy? Uh, that's not private data, and that doesn't really confirm anything. I don't understand what's the point of calling me and bothering me if that's the question I'm going to be asked. Right. Why can't they ask me to plug in my Trezor and cryptographically authenticate in a way that only I can do the wire transfer I'm about to send? That would be That's what they really want, and there's now a method to do it. Now, to a certain extent, it's crazy to do that because why would everybody have these devices? That's, that's unrealistic. But uh, Bitcoin is the killer app for personal security. The technology in this device could have existed... 10, 15, 20 years ago, but no one would have used it rightly. The, mm-hmm. the furthest we got was RSA, or, or uh, excuse me, the little dongles that do two-factor authentication, yep. right? And that's a similar form of this, but treasures are, are, are that you know multiplied. Um, now they exist. They have sold millions of these devices over the last few years. Trezor, Ledger, uh, Cold Card, some of the other companies that make these kinds of products. So there are, I would estimate, maybe 10 million aggregate people in the world that now own one or more sophisticated personal cryptographic authentication and authorization devices. And you can use it to encrypt your passwords. Yeah. Like it, it, it's a very powerful device. Yeah. yeah, we've had a lot of conversations uh, about the differences between hot and cold storage. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Dio Gavanak on from Anchorage talking about that difference. And you know, his take on cold storage always makes me laugh about how it's almost like the uh, 1800s with pirate maps and how to have to find all the, uh, your, your treasure at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll see evolutions there as well, too. And in terms of evolutions, you know, some of the things, you know, in terms of Bitcoin, what's happening within Bitcoin and, you know, kind of it evolving. You know, Dan Held was on the show a few months back talking about this Cambrian explosion, this evolution of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And you guys talked about it a little bit today, too. Where is Bitcoin going to evolve and how so? Wow, where is it? Because <laughs> it's like you're talking about the Cambrian explosion, which is like yeah. in all directions, and yeah. so like now we're like, oh, which one do we pick? I think or, we're in the Cambrian so explosion. So we, we know, yeah. Yeah. we know that you know if you look at the BIPs, there's North Signatures with Pierre is working on. We know that Mast and some of the other and Taproot and some of the other things. These are things that are happening. You know that people you know who are listening can go and, and look at them. But what are they? What are these right. innovations? What are these evolutions of Bitcoin? What is it trying to become? Maybe you can speak a bit about the technological mm-hmm. side, and I can talk about what I think is going to come out of it. So, I, I, uh, sure, yeah. Like, I mean, in my view, the trick here is drawing the line in the right place. Every software engineer will say that. Like, it's easy to build a software that does everything because you have no limits. It's kind of like it's easy to build a bridge that costs a billion dollars, and you know, it, an engineer has to build a cheap, effective, simple, modular, replaceable, you know, fixable 
uh, understandable to future generations of engineers, uh, robust, secure, especially in the context of Bitcoin, how do you get that? You get that by drawing lines. You say there are certain things this cannot do um, and won't do, and that's, a, that, and that's a good idea. And what will do them instead? Some other piece of technology, a new piece of software that sits on top of this layer. And a, a point I made earlier in the, in the talk that we just, that Tour and I just gave was a compu any computing device is composed of so many layers. And right. most users of those devices don't see that. I have no idea. And I don't even mean layers like a car. Like a car is like, I'm not a mechanic or an auto engineer, so to me a car is very mysterious in some ways how it works. But the amount of layers there is, is many, many, many fewer for a mechanical device. Uh, the car's computer, on the other hand, is just doing arithmetic, yet somehow it's providing all the functions of the car. When you're using Twitter or YouTube or you're having a meaningful conversation with someone um, through the internet, and it's really important, and, you, and your heart is aching in this conversation. It's just arithmetic on the wires going back and forth. You know, I think that's a line of Dawkins originally. And so I think when we think about how powerful layered engineering is, we should consider the difference between Bitcoin, which is a base layer, a protocol, um, and what can be built on top of that. So in terms of where we're going, in, in the broadest scheme, I think we're building a new protocol for much of human society. And I say that in the way that money is fundamentally a protocol for much of human society. Now, the money we have has to be cobbled and fit in awkward ways into the layers above it, like through spreadsheets and accounting and all these methodologies that are fundamentally it have to be re-automated with computers at some point uh, because they kind of were happening without computers all along. With Bitcoin, you're starting in the computer and you're building the base protocol, the money, into the computer in a way that is defensible. And... So what will happen? We should expect to see many, many, many layers grow on top of this base layer, and we're going to replicate the many sectors of the economy or shift them over to this base layer over the coming decades. I see things like data markets, uh, bandwidth markets, identity systems, voting, all sorts of stuff on the blockchain, if you'd like. Except it's not really on the blockchain, because it's just on layer whatever. It's, it's an application that's running in a distributed operating system that is you know, global and, and, and planet-spanning at this right. point. By the way, every time a guest comes on my show now and they say base layer, I'm going to demand 100 Satoshis. Uh -huh. Excellent. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, you got it into my mind. That's not very much. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm... I can say it a million times that I would still only owe you a Bitcoin. There you yeah. go. Still. So, Tor, what about kind of where things are going in regards to Bitcoin. I just gave a talk about going beyond Bitcoin. Uh, as people know, I am an adamant enthusiast about Bitcoin, but I believe that there You got you to say adamant. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Mm. Um, very nicely done. And so, you know, where do you think, you know, as my kind of talk alluded to, I believe that there is things to be done with the technological underpinnings of distributed and decentralized systems. I don't necessarily like to use the word blockchains. I use distributed and decentralized systems. Mm -hmm. And so with that, you know, you know, with what Bitcoin is working on in terms of some of the BIPs and some of the things going forward, as someone who's so involved in the community, where do you think it, you know, is it going to try to emulate, you know, or is it going to try to do something like a smart contract? Or is it going to just continue to be what it is and be the best that it can be? Well, it's not either or. I mean, like the Lightning Network, I don't know if people know uh, your listeners, but I mean, it's it's a network that's designed to allow for, you know, e e extremely high volumes of very small Bitcoin transactions so that I can tip you five cents. I can, you know, buy a coffee, all those kind of things from my phone just very, very efficiently. That's a smart contract layer, right? The Lightning Network is a smart contract uh, layer. Uh, Multi-sig transactions, multi-signature transactions, where, for example, you know, we are sitting here with three people, and the wallet is set up so that three out of five signatures is enough to unlock it. Like the three of us, if we sign, 
and we send that transaction away, that's in a way a smart contract. So, so uh, Nick Zabo, the inventor of smart contracts, he, he's often used the comparison of a vending machine. A vending machine is a smart contract where you know you kind of push a few buttons and, and it's a very predictable outcome. So I think that uh, it's important to not immediately kind of go to the esoteric realm of like, you know, they're basically going to be computerized accountants and, you know, the lawyers are going to disappear and it's all going to... Uh, I think there's a very human aspect to law, for example, that is very hard to replace with, with machines. But, you know, if you think about the base layer, are, are there certain things, basic transactions that are now happening with, like, you know, people on the phone that we can replace with, with uh, technology? Like, absolutely. For example, I mean, the, look at how the, the Federal Reserve System works and, you know, how money is created there and how it's siphoned from one layer to the next. And then the SWIFT network comes in and, like, a lot of that can be, you know, can be done in a different way that's less, ultimately less energy consuming. Right. So the last, just, just a yeah. follow-up point on that, because I think it comes back to this idea of drawing lines correctly. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's this conception that because Bitcoin doesn't have the smart contracts, Tor correctly says it actually does if you have a uh, more broader definition of what a smart contract is. I think some people use smart contract to mean a Turing complete programming environment, in the, in, which is a technical way of saying it can do anything a computer can do normally. Right. Um, and I think sometimes for those that for those who don't know how, who aren't programmers who, or, or who don't know how computers really work, um, it seems like that has to be better. Like if you are Turing complete, which is to say, if you can do anything a computer can do, that has got to be better than not being able to do everything. It's like a, a butler. Can. Like if you can have a butler on the blockchain, yeah. isn't that great? Isn't that better? Like, yeah, yeah. and the answer is no. It is not better. And there's also this conception that it must be harder and therefore more valuable to have done that. Bitcoin couldn't figure that out. That when Bitcoin came out, they they, they like sort of wasn't smart enough or forward thinking enough to to program in to Bitcoin this ability to do anything a computer can do. And those are just false conceptions. The truth is, it is easier almost to build something that can do anything a computer can do. Mm-hmm. That Turing completeness is not a hard thing to achieve. Um, I would like to make a small list off the top of my head of Turing complete systems, which are systems that can compute anything a computer can compute. Super Mario Brothers. Um, uh, what else? Magic the Gathering. Um, tons of programs that you think just do simple things, but because of bugs, because of exploits, because of paths the programmer didn't realize, you're able to sneak around and you're able to like set up data and operate on it. And let's remember, computers are just doing arithmetic. Right. So if you can achieve arithmetic somehow, you can, there is, that's a very loaded statement for any mathematicians that are listening, but let's, let's leave it at that. If you can achieve arithmetic, you can build a machine which does anything a computer can do. Mm-hmm. So it's not hard. The real challenge is, well, I only want to be able to do these things and then absolutely nothing else. Because if it can do anything, there's all sorts of ways to hack it. I have to worry about a massive security interface. It becomes computer engineering, which right. we know humans are bad at. We're bad at securing computers online. The attack vector. Exactly. But you know what doesn't get hacked is like a sewing machine. You know what I mean? Like a calculator that, won't, that is not Turing complete, that doesn't do anything but one thing. Right. Um, I would like to say like a fridge, but these days fridges are Turing complete because they have computers in them. Right. Um, would you say the human body is also that that example, like uh, where the the goal of the body is to first minimize the amount of contaminants that enter the bloodstream, and then you know the 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 last line of defense is maybe the immune system. Is that too far? Or do you, would you say that that's there's an interesting analogy in there somewhere, and I almost want to like yeah. Over drink, so we should get into that, I think. But the net net point here, just because I know you had another question, is <laughs> is fundamentally like Bitcoin. The, the engineers who are working on Bitcoin are trying purposefully to avoid 
doing everything a computer can do, yet simultaneously delivering the bare essentials required to build applications on top of Bitcoin, like right. the Lightning Network, and all the layers and, and great things that I alluded to in my, in my last answer. Right. Bitcoin engineers want those things. They want all those things. They want your house on the blockchain, so to speak. They want identity on the blockchain in, in these ways, but they don't actually want it on the blockchain of Bitcoin. They want it to be in an application that runs on a very, very secure, well-defined operating system, if you will like. And that, that is Bitcoin. So is it smart? Can it do smart contracts? Like, is Bitcoin going to be able to do these sophisticated things that Tor actually points out we might not even actually need? Um, yes, eventually. And it's going to do it in a defensible way using layers. Systems which try to cram all that functionality into the first layer are naive and I think just in bad taste. Right. Yeah, one analogy I like, and it's it was a few years ago, uh, suggested that, you know, you can look at Bitcoin as like an island. Like all the Bitcoins, 21 million Bitcoin, it is like, it is a certain surface. And, you know, buying a Bitcoin is like you buy a little parcel on that island. And then if you, you know, extend the analogy, you can think about, you know, these uh, second layer, third layer protocols, they're kind of like the real estate that you build on the island where, for example, a sidechain, what you do is you'll, you'll lock some Bitcoins on layer one, you unlock them in layer two, and all of a sudden, the scarcity remains, which is key, but they have different properties. They, for example, have like faster elevator. confirmation times. Yeah. You can only be at one vertical height on that patch of land. Right, and you're still in the same patch of land, mm -hmm. but if you're on the 20th floor, maybe you're compromising a little bit on security because you can fall out, or you, if they've died, the building's on fire, there's a problem, but you have an amazing view. And so there's these different trade-offs in the side chains that are now, you know, if you look at the liquid network, is it is, it is uh, I think, proving to be very potent. For example, the liquid side chain is a federated side chain, so it's, it's a different security model, so it's a little bit higher risk. But one-minute confirmation times, uh, the ability to issue assets on top of Bitcoin. So you can, I can send you 100 Satoshis like as a fine for, uh, what is it, saying? Same base layer. Saying base layer, so 300 <laughs> Satoshis by now. Um, so so uh, I can send you yeah, uh, 300 Satoshis, but I can attach a million dollars worth of um, assets to it because you can issue assets in these side chains very easily because because there's less um, miners so to speak there's less of a problem of that congestion of nodes whereas like the base layer has to be I said it uh, extremely lean <laughs> um, it has to be extremely lean but on a side chain you can have different properties and so I think it's it's it takes probably multiple podcasts for people to kind of get this idea that, you know, different layers mean different properties, but you remain in the Bitcoin ecosystem. You don't have to kind of start from scratch. Just like, I guess, like I want to say, like in the human body, like you don't have to reinvent an organism. Yeah, yeah. You can just use DNA everywhere. You can use like, you know, the immune system ID everywhere, yeah. procreation, like, you know, a lot of those things stay the same. They're just kind of assembled slightly differently. I think one of the things that I've been trying to educate a lot of people about is that you know and we did this when i had my talk today is that i had them you know go on their phone and run a search for who's going to the world series and a lot of people who are outside of our box don't realize that when they run that search whether it's on google or yahoo wherever it may be the amount of things the processes the substrate layers that are interacting with each other to get you that answer within a millisecond of time mm -hmm. there's four or five, six different things that are happening mm -hmm. that you have no idea about. Probably four or five, six thousand. You it, know? I, I know. It's, it, it, I, I feel like that it's an underappreciated point that you're making. And yeah. people, I think, just don't realize that. Right. They're not programmers. Right. And so, you know, I think what we're going to get to see is that with the emphasis on privacy, we talked about privacy, mm -hmm. 
Um, we're starting to see with GDPR uh, over in Europe, that's obviously becoming more of an, an issue. Just a little sticky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. When you go overseas and you try to go online, you have to fill all those boxes. Um, but then here in the States, one of the things I think is interesting that I'm observing is that 40 uh, attorney generals started probing Google. Um, and one of the primary reasons they did that is because of privacy. That they were, you know, basically siphoning our data. Yep. Um, and so it's quite interesting in this day and age that privacy, in my opinion, you know, might cause this awakening that we are all still very kind of enslaved to the free, mm-hmm. you know, free Gmail. That's Waze. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Facebook and Instagram. It's free. It's easy. It's frictionless. Right. Um, but with free comes the end cause of you being the product. And you exactly. basically your digital self, your your own entity, your own self is being mined. Um, and so, you know, when I talk about adoption or I talk about when this awakening happens, I think those cracks in terms of privacy will start to resonate more and more with future generations in the next 10 to 15 years where people say, well, no, you know, I don't want you to know where I'm walking to. Right. And, you know, oh, if you do want to actually, you know, know where I'm going to, well, you're going to have to, you know, pay me some Satoshis or yep. whatever it may yep. be. And so it's it's interesting to talk about kind of adoption. And it's fascinating how these like ecosystems, because like there's there's the mesh network movement where it's like, you know, they want to get away from the centralized Internet providers and they just want to like be able to have an Internet that is kind of peer to peer bottom up. And then there's like, you know, the, the, the guys who are really all about, you know, maximizing privacy. And then there's the Bitcoiners and like, but all these ecosystems are inner, they're cross pollinating. Like, for example, uh, Gotenna is a little device that allows you to. Uh, basically connect with another person peer-to-peer and create such a mesh, mesh network and exchange information and chat with each other just like a regular, you know, just like a face chat or something. Um, but it's all encrypted and private and now they're integrating Bitcoin into that. So then you can have then you can have a, you can monetize your services. So if you, you can be a Gotenna service provider and, and sort of deliver bandwidth to a whole swath of people and then all of a sudden there's this whole kind of very interesting ecosystem that might develop because Bitcoin allows things to be monetized and then an economy can emerge. Mm-hmm. And I think that was often the Achilles heel of a lot of the technologies. Like how do you monetize or how do you incentivize people right. to start using something? That's right. So I think as we wrap up, you know, one of the things I like to do on the show is allowing you know guests to have people find you. So mm-hmm. where can people find more about you, Drew, and then Tour, and then uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so I am a co-founder at a company called Unchained Capital, and so you'll find me uh, writing a lot. So uh, certain crazier things than we've even talked about, um, about where Bitcoin may go, um, on uh, our blog at uh, unchained-capital.com slash blog. I really recommend his article on uh, whether Bitcoin is going to be used on Mars. Wow. <laughs> but, yeah, it's. Uh, I had a really good time writing that, and I love that... Uh, there are other people that actually care about that besides me, so yeah. that's amazing. Uh, but unshakedcapital.com, um, uh, we give. Uh, so we didn't actually get to talk a, a little bit about. We, can we talk a little bit about Unchained and Adam? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. And Unchained Capital is a company that I started with Joe Kelly, my co-founder from uh, the, the, the distributed systems company that that uh, I started years ago. Um, and it's actually it's sort of an interesting story how we got started. Um, 
it was really just approaching Bitcoin as a data set. And one of the articles that we wrote uh, that has some some popularity is if you, you probably find it easily if you just Google HODL waves, H-O-D-L, HODL, and then waves. It's just an observation that Bitcoin is as much a data set as it is a network or a money or anything else. And you can analyze it as a data set. You can ask questions. And one of the questions you can ask is, you know, on average, when was this? When was Bitcoin moved? Since there's only 18 million of them, you can ask for each one. You can kind of look and be like, well, when were you last moved? Who, who, who poked you last? And what you find is that a huge number of them don't move. <clears throat> and indeed, this is kind of what you asked at the, the top of the show about lost Bitcoin. This is one of the ways in which people try to characterize how much Bitcoin is lost by looking at, look, if that Bitcoin wasn't moved in, in nine years, it's likely never going to move again. Right. Um, not necessarily, but likely. And so looking at that data set, we sort of realized that there, there's a lot of buying and selling in Bitcoin. There's a lot of hodling, which is investing over the long term, and there's really no other intermediate options. And Unchained sort of emerged by looking at this data set and realizing that's exactly what people are doing. There's a bunch of Bitcoin which moves quickly, and there's a bunch that just kind of sits there forever doing nothing. It's years old. Uh, and sort of Joe and I were like, wait, that's our Bitcoin. We don't do anything with our Bitcoin. It just kind of sits around. It's a long-term investment. I was you know, giving it to my kids kind of thing, a store of wealth. And yes, it's going to be volatile, but I don't care because I don't need to spend it today. I'm just right. going to save it for the next generation. Um, and that's a lot, of what, a lot of what people were thinking. And then Joe and I were like, well, there's got to be stuff you can do with a store of wealth, real estate, gold, uh, you know, many kinds of uh, securities are stores of wealth as well. And we do all sorts of things with them as a society. We leverage them, we insure them, we um, have derivatives, we have all sorts of structure around these forms of wealth. And Bitcoin had none of that. So Unchained Capital is really an attempt to try to give that those tools to Bitcoin owners. And there are a bunch of Bitcoin owners who have a lot of Bitcoin that can't obtain a loan based on their Bitcoin. That's the first product we launched was the ability to, to get a collateralized US dollar loan, collateralized by your Bitcoin. So you don't have to sell it, there's no tax consequences. Um, and we, we, we uh, speaking of smart contracts, I think what's unique about our services is we really focus on multi-signature custody. So a, f a simple form of smart contract, which kind of spreads out uh, the risk of hacks and control to multiple parties. In fact, when our borrowers borrow with us, uh, they're able to hold a key. We have a key and there's an independent third party that has a key. Right. That's actually a really interesting structure by which to build a smart contract, if you like, in which humans are a big part of the intelligence and encode a very traditional, probably the most ancient financial instrument of all, like in a smart way on the blockchain right now, today, and we're doing it you know, at the tens of millions of dollars scale already. Um, I think that is, uh, it's not as maybe magical as having everything automatically, our whole website, our loan origination process, et cetera, happen magically on the blockchain all at once. But as I said, we like to think in layers and human beings today are an important layer of how to deliver, consume, and interface with financial services. So we like to be those human beings. Um, I think that's hopefully a really interesting transition for Tour because um, I think I'll let Tour speak to it, but his, his find is probably one of the best examples of someone who's thinking about how to use these traditional tools to uh, impact Bitcoin investors. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the fund because it's a hedge fund and, and usually, you know, we, we kind of talk about the product when, when people contact us. Uh, but in terms of the research that we've done, uh, it's been it's been similar to what Drew is talking about. Uh, really focused on, you know, how do we how do we help people that that kind of are already where they want to hold Bitcoin for the long term, and like you know, how do we think about things? And one of the questions is like, you know, if I want to buy more, like how do I do that? When do I do that? So we had a report called "How to Position for the Bitcoin Rally" in. November 2015, Bitcoin was $270. 
So that was, you know, before it went to $20,000. And then we put out another report. Um, I'm trying to think what the day was. I think it was April um, earlier this year when Bitcoin was at around 4,500, where we called the bottom and we, uh, it was called Bitcoin and heavy accumulation because a lot of family offices at the time were buying. And so we put that out there and, and, um, and the idea is really to help people psychologically understand this volatility in the market. Um, and then we also, you know, dive into historical analogies and things like that. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's really, you know, what, oh, and then I guess also, uh, we developed some, uh, Bitcoin valuation metrics because that's something that a lot of investors yes. struggle with is like, you know, I can, in the stock market, I can look at the PE ratio or there's all these kind of commonly understood tools to look at whether something is over or undervalued. But in Bitcoin, that is, that is just not really existent or it's, it's an emerging space. Mm-hmm. You know, target. A lot of work has happened on that. And I think there's quite a, quite a number of fallacies there too, where, for example, if you look at the amount of transactions that happen on a blockchain, I don't think that necessarily tells you something about whether that blockchain is under or overvalued. Um, so something that we've developed is called um, liveliness, and it basically weighs um, a blockchain uh, based on uh, how much meaningful transactions are happening on it. And with meaningful, uh, we look at if old coins are moving, that is more meaningful because then you're talking about settlement. Like imagine if you could measure that in gold, in the gold space, like physical gold, if gold that had been in a vault for a hundred years, all of a sudden, a lot of that gold starts moving. Well, that must mean something, right? right. If it moves from one owner to the other, it means something. Um, and so we base um, some of our evaluation work on, on those kind of ideas. Um, just so maybe just to interject for some of the audience that might not be aware of this. Great example of Bitcoin pseudonymity. It, you cannot see who yeah, is doing this, exactly. but you can see every amount of every transaction, right. right. dates, so you can construct these sorts of measures. Right. Bitcoin is fantastically auditable. Like It's amazing in that sense. Um, so yeah, if people want to know more, like I would say just Google my name. My Twitter account is the first one that pops up. And then there's probably some Medium articles that also show up. Awesome. So I'd say that's the best place. For those that don't know Tour on Twitter, like go follow him and scroll down <laughs> on his history. And you will see well, one of the most consistent um, uh, investors in the space and who's been putting out quality content. And fr- frankly, someone who I learned a lot of the sort of economic side and like why do people believe this. Uh, Tour has been a big impact on me. So check awesome. him out. So this was Tor and Dhruv, and this was a heavy Bitcoin conversation at Digital Asset Strategy Summit in Dallas. Thank you guys for joining us, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Take care. Happy to be here. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.